The Silicon Valley story about computer networks is that it requires open cultures and societies. And if there's any three trinity of social values, they're probably liberty, democracy, and commerce. Well, the Soviet case study, I think, suggests a different set of social values, where you see instead a cybernetic collectivism, as well as a commitment to decentralized yet hierarchical states. And also the third, with this all this political economic stuff, you have a commitment not to commerce, but to planned economies. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get to the show, I wanted to make an appeal to everyone that if you like what you hear on this podcast, please consider making a donation to support the show and its mission to bring critical voices about Eurasian history, culture, politics, and society. If you'd like to make a contribution, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Support the SRB Podcast button. Many of you have already generously contributed, and I want to say a big thank you for all your support. I'd also like to get listeners more involved in the show. So if you'd like to ask a guest a question after listening to this interview, please submit it at seansrussiablog.org under the Submit a Question tab. I'll then get the guest to answer one of the questions and include it on an upcoming podcast. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org as well, and I'll read some of them on the next podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Ben Peters to the podcast to talk about the efforts by Soviet cyberneticists to create a Soviet internet in the 1960s. Ben Peters is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Tulsa and an affiliated faculty at the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. He is the author of How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. Here's Ben Peters. So your book, How Not to Network a Nation, is dealing with the attempt in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, really up to 1990, to develop some kind of national computer network or even Soviet internet. And this is done by cyberneticists in the Soviet Union. So I want to start out by just defining terms and giving some background to the development of cybernetics. What is cybernetics and how did it develop in the post-World War II period? So cybernetics is one of those words that's, I think, rarely used and less often understood in the contemporary moment, but that nonetheless has really relevant intellectual valence in, in how we think about the information age today. I mean, sort of briefly put, I would say that cybernetics is the science of self-governing information systems, or it's a, another way of saying that is it's a particularly post-war interdisciplinary search for means of scientific control and communication. I think it consolidates around the Macy conferences and in particular the work of Norbert Wiener in between 1947 through 1956 in the American or Anglophone context. But the story that I tell takes that moment and translates it into the Soviet discourse and looks at what happens in, in that context. But I think for basic understanding purposes, it's important to recognize that what cybernetics does is it introduces into the modern world ways of talking, a vocabulary for thinking about information, feedback, control, and communication that are still very much relevant and pressing today. You know, some of our thoughts like cyborg, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator stuff, that kind of sci-fi imagination also draws indirectly 
from the cybernetic milieu, even though cybernetics itself only rarely occupies itself with those kind of science fiction-y concerns. And what was driving the development? Was it the military political atmosphere of the Cold War? Or did it develop more independently out of uh, out of uh, just scientific development? Or how were these, of course, connected? Yes, absolutely connected. So I think probably the first and most obvious is that this is a scientific technocratic search for self-stabilizing systems in the wake of World War II, in the wake of two terrible wars. You know, I mean, it's certainly not the first time nor the last time that scientists and others have sought for tools and theories that could help bring about peace and equilibria or homeostasis in, in the jargon of, of the cyberneticists to an, in, a, in a social world as well as a technical and engineering world. So it's, it's this imagination that the, the social and the technological systems can um, sort of are, are constantly playing off one another. As it happens, a lot of the post-war cyberneticists, while their institutions are deeply embedded in the military industrial academic complex of the Cold War, they're also quite often politically pacifist. At least there's a, a, a solid chunk of them that are. There are also others who are quite actively and openly participating in the development of military means. So it is, as always, a both-and story, and not an either-or, but um, game theory, operations research, information theory, cybernetics, all of these are variously overlapping scientific means for using rationality and strategic means of technical control to try to bring about and realize some goal. And, you know, what that goal is, is left neutral for the the generals. It can be beating the other superpower at their their best chess game. Or for the pacifist, it can be to develop a more bottom-up organic system that will bring about peace without military intervention. Cybernex, of course, comes into the Soviet Union, or at least the, the Soviet Soviet scientists and commentators, of course, are aware of these developments in, in the West, but not just in the West. Also, you mentioned the fact that cybernetics is developing in Chile. How was cybernetics received in the Soviet Union in the late 40s and early 50s? So that's a fantastic question. And it's one that's rarely been told in English, except for the work of MIT historian of science, Slava Gorovich, who tells the, the initial uh, work on this, on which my work builds. So basically, I'd, I offer like a four-step flow, if you want to think about how cybernetics was received in the Soviet Union. Um, the first is that in between 1948 and 1953, it was basically subjected to an anti-American ideological campaign under Stalin. Although it's interesting to note that while it was not alone in that, there wasn't a particular vigor. I mean, it was just yet one another of those pseudo-American, pseudo-scientific bourgeois sciences that we could critique. And so there's that early moment is kind of par for the course, I think. What happens after the death of Stalin is you have this emerging adoption and adaptation of cybernetic discourse, initially by a small number of cyberneticists as early as 1953, that really kind of build momentum. And cybernetics in the late 50s, and particularly in the early 60s, I argue, becomes almost the most natural heir, if you would, to filling the political vacuum left by Stalin, which is to say, if you're trying to figure out how to avoid bloody cults of personality and the other problems that come with strongman states, well, perhaps science and its promise of technocratic neutrality might be the best next step. At least this is what a lot of scientists seem to be thinking in their enthusiasm for cybernetics. And not just politically, but intellectually, it also becomes a broad technocratic umbrella for rehabilitating or 
re-legitimizing a range of sciences that had been previously shuttered in the previous decade under Stalin. So the third step is when it cybernetics kind of mainstreams in the mid-60s through the mid-70s. It's so broadly supported, like the institutional support for it almost outruns its own intellectual legs. As happens when you have many, many people involved in it, it starts to lose its coherence and ends up meaning a kind of empty signifier for this is a science that works with computers. So like a like computer science almost or something, but not, not quite. It could apply to anything from linguistics to health to theoretical mathematics. At one point at the height of this sort of cybernetic moment in the Soviet Union, um, which lasts much longer than in the West, I should note, one-fourth of the Academy of Sciences self-describes as cybernetics. And it's fair to say that basically the other three-quarters could, without too much violence, be subject to that. That's actually interesting. So how did they, how did scientists fit themselves into a, a wider concept of cybernetics? Did they, is it the conceptual model? Is there some conceptual models that they attached themselves to? Or was it the, the promise of the computer? Or what, what was it? I think it's less the computer. At least initially, the pioneers in the early 50s and late 60s are, are dealing with something more concrete than this is just a computing tool that we're going to add to our work, whatever it is. But rather, it's more like a systems thinking about how information flows move within whatever subject they're studying. So if you're thinking about biology, then all of a sudden the circulation system or the cellular mitosis or, or, or whatever it is that you're looking at should be described as a series of information flows. Or in linguistics, right, Jakobsonian emphasis on units of sound um, and how, how language can be broken down into definable discrete units that themselves can be part of a larger system of meaning making. So I think that's, that's kind of the initial instinct, although it's, it's very contentious and multiple, naturally multiple competing definitions are offered that I try to detail in, in, in the book. And then it begins to mean less and less, I think, in the, in the 70s. And uh, eventually it's replaced something called informatics um, in, the, in the late 70s. Soviet cyberneticists saw cybernetics as a means to make the Soviet planned economy more efficient. The promise of this network for the Soviet economy is one of the things you focus on. Talk about the planned economy and the attempts to reform it in the 1960s and the place cybernetics had in those attempts to reform. When I set out to write a book about the history of Soviet networks, I was not expecting to, as I should have, I should have anticipated this, be thrown headlong into the study of political economy and institutional economics and the rest of it. But I think it turns out that one of the great and sort of peculiar to the former Soviet Union intellectual space things about cybernetics is that it attached directly to questions of political economy. So it's no surprise, I think, that the the planned economy has long understood itself as a kind of immense coordination system uh, question, and, and its problems are coordination problems, right? So building on the German sense of Bavel uh, Wirtschaft and, and, and the wartime planned economies, we see a much longer pre-cybernetic focus on how the planned economy should be understood as a, as a system for paperwork information flows, right? Your quotas and demands and administrative regimes that tell whom to do what, when, where, and how. That's, in the end, I think the pretty basic understanding of the economy that cybernetics naturally molded into fit like uh, like a glove. And, you know, I mean, it's also worth pointing out that at the time in which the cyberneticists were finding their intellectual leagues to talk in these terms, 
the Soviet economy is, even if you account for overinflated statistics, is still enjoying in the 50s really pretty surprisingly significant economic growth. Solid growth in the 60s, flattening to a plateau in the 70s, eventual collapse in the 80s and the rest of it. But there's still this surprise promise. Francis Spufford's, uh, you know, the Red Plenty book is just glorious on this, on this period, if your listeners don't already know it. I think there's a way that cybernetics just filled what was already an ongoing discourse about economic work as a complex information coordination problem. So what place would, would cybernetic was the idea that if you, if, since the planned economy is based on information flows, is the idea if you transfer this to some sort of electronic or computer network that would make it more efficient in terms of the allocation of resources and production and distribution? Yeah, so two steps I would point out, at least here, I think. So the first is, if you think of the sort of economic cybernetics in the Soviet Union as nothing more than a technological upgrade for a pre-existing command economy, then what you have are two potential improvements. The first is a much more efficient transmission of the quotas and the information demands that are already the blood of the planned economy. And the second, and this is where things get a little more interesting, is that in addition to transmission, Cybernetics also offers ways of coordinating or better optimizing or managing and even partially automating the decisions about those information flows themselves. And so this is, this is where things get political, right? So it's about decision making rather than just delivery. And there's an interesting way in which I think cybernetics as a systems theory, as a way of thinking about self-governing systems has a lot to offer a sense of reforming the economy. Okay, so in the 1960s, Soviet cyberneticists developed proposals for creating this com computer networking of the Soviet economy. Talk about some of these proposals and, and what led to their failure? Why weren't they adopted? So between 1962 and 1963, we see coalescence of interest around network, nationwide network proposals to build computer network proposals. And here are three of them. First, Anatoly Kitov proposes the first civilian use nationwide computer network, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the world, which he actually does so before this period in the fall of 1959. And then between 1962 and 1963, a whole bunch of other people get on board and start proposing similar computer networks meant mostly to manage the command economy. But probably two worth focusing on briefly are Alexander Karakevich's ESS, or the Yedinaya Systema Sviazi, Unified Information Communication Network. And then the last one, which is, plays the prominent role in my, my book, is Viktor Mikhailovich Glushkov's OGAS project, where the OGAS stands for the Opshay Gustavsnaya Automatizirovnaya Systema, or the All-State Automated System. And those three each play interesting roles in how people were thinking about networking the Soviet economy in the early 60s. Let me just say briefly a little bit about Kitov's project. His innovation really wasn't that, it doesn't sound spectacular to us today, just as maybe Sputnik is a basketball-sized metal ball that bleeps may not sound that spectacular to us today. And yet it was monumental in its time. His proposal was simply that pre-existing comp military computer networks be used in the evening for civilian economic problem-solving purposes. And that perhaps pre-existing military computer networks be expanded and allow sort of broader civilian purposes. The story there is actually what happens to him because of that proposal. Kitov is at the moment a kind of rising young military scientist, and he's the first, as best as I can tell, the first Soviet cyber, self-declared cyberneticist. 
who basically discovers Norbert Wiener's work in 1948 and recovers it in the years preceding this. And he's enjoying a really spectacular career rise. But in the fall of 1959, after proposing an earlier proposal to uh, Brezhnev, actually reads his uh, proposal, Pitov tries again. But this time his, what's called the Red Book proposal, is intercepted by his own military supervisors who are enraged by this sort of scandalous assertion that the military and the civilian economists collaborate or share resources. And Kitov is, in fact, dismissed from the Red Army and from the Communist Party for a year and has to reinvent himself. So it's, it's kind of a, the story there is, is the, this moment of political censorship, particularly that one that reinforces the divide between military and civilian concerns. I mean, another way of saying that is if there's any virtue in the West, uh, in the military industrial academic complex, and I doubt, you know, it's hard to say that there is because it's often the bad thing. It's the complex, right? It's the dashes in the phrase that allow for interagency, inter-industry collaboration and knowledge sharing and the rest of it. In this case, we see Kitov coming up against a brick wall from his own military commanders. So more briefly, Kharkiyevich, his unified information communication network is kind of like a predecessor, I want to say, almost to the NSA sounds too pernicious or something today, but it, his goal was not political or economic. It was simply technocratic. He wanted all signals to converge in a grand telephonic computer network. And he proposes this bold, ambitious view in which basically everything from radio, television, if there would be satellites in the future, that all information might be fed into a common collectivist network. And that's that's just an interesting way of thinking about it. We don't talk about that anymore, but I think it's worth kind of reclaiming as a way of thinking. And then finally, I, I can say more about Glushkov's Ogas project, but it's it's the protagonist of yeah, we'll talk more about Glushkov in general because he's such a he's such a fascinating figure in so many ways. Now, after your discussion of these various proposals, you make a really interesting point. It also this point goes to one of the hearts of what you're trying to say about the, the attempts to develop this Soviet internet, for lack of a better term. You you say, quote, there is no inherent connection between the designs of technological and political systems. Now, this is an interesting statement because most people assume that in order to have a internet or a network society, you need an open and transparent society. Uh, what do you mean by this statement? That gets right to the heart of it. So, yeah, let me let me just play with that for a little bit and see what we can come up with. So, there's there's the anthropologist and philosopher Bruno Latour put it or quipped that technology is society made durable. And his point, I think, is that you know the hard stuff of technologies, once examined, reveal supposedly soft social values you know, the things that make them possible or thinkable. And I think the Soviet internet case kind of suggests a reverse of this aphorism. And also simultaneously, if we want to come back to this, a check against the cybernetic impulse to keep analogizing social and technological systems. When, in, other words, in other words, I think we can say the reverse. We can say that society too is technology made temporary. In other words, when we, we see in the passing of the Soviet regime, we can recognize that the values that they associated with computer networks have passed on into history, and we should recognize that so too will our assumptions about networks be subject to the same at some point in the future. So if you follow, and this is too easy, this is a caricature admittedly, but kind of the Silicon Valley story about computer networks is exactly that, that it requires open cultures and societies, and if there's any three a trinity of social values, they're probably liberty, democracy, and commerce, the great promises of the internet. 
Well, the Soviet case study, I think, suggests a different set of social values, where you see instead a kind of cybernetic collectivism, as well as a commitment to decentralized yet hierarchical states. And also the third, with this all this political economic stuff, you have a commitment not to commerce, but to planned economies. And what's interesting for me is not that their networks didn't work out so much as they were perfectly faithful in their imagination of those networks in terms that we don't recognize as our own network values today. And I think this isn't just a sort of historiographic reflection. I think this has bearing on the present moment in really important ways that I hope that we as you know, Russian studies and various specialists can take seriously, which is that the world is facing, the, I think you can identify in Europe, particularly France and China and India, some, they're staging a rather considerable pushback against this Silicon Valley uniform story of the internet today, where there's a lot of national regulatory cultural interests in shaping and defining and coloring your own network and how users, local citizens are going to use that in their own way. So we're likely in the future to have, the future will probably hold many internets. And I think the point of this book is that the past already has that. Uh, there, and there's, there's many, many more to learn from than I think we usually give credence to. That's for me the end implications of trying to separate technological from political values. So they're not necessarily connected. Well, let's go into some of those things, and particularly around the most ambitious attempt to create a network, to network the Soviet Union, and that's the all-state automated system, or OGAS, in the 1960s. What was OGAS, and, and what was the promise of electronic socialism? I found this really interesting. So the OGAS project, as I may have already said, was Probably the most ambitious attempt to network the Soviet Union or to construct a nationwide computer network. Its primary visionary and, and per, uh, you know, promoter was uh, Glushkov, again, whom you know the New York Times obituary dubbed as the king of Soviet cybernetics. Um, and he sort of saw this as his life work in between 1962, when he's appointed the director of the Institute of Cybernetics in Kiev, and his death of a apparent brain hemorrhage in 1982. So this, there's a 20-year period where he is really committed to building this project. So what is the OGAS? It's short for, again, the Obshoi Gesundarstvenai Automatizirovanai Systema. And that itself, the All-State Automated System, is a shortening of the full name, train-length name, the All-State Automated System for the Gathering and Processing of Information for the Accounting and Planning and Governance of the National Economy in the USSR. <laughs> so like, even in its name, it's heroic gargantuan um, in, in naming as well as ambition. But interestingly, Glushkov is also very pragmatic. And so the big vision is to propose over a 30-year period from 1962 to about 1990, building of pre-existing and new telephony net networks that would go online and would create a real-time decentralized hierarchical computer network that would stretch and manage all the information flows of the command economy. It would reach from Moscow, a central computing center in Moscow, to several hundred regional prominent computing centers in major cities, all the way down to a third level, as many as 20,000 local computing centers throughout factories and enterprises and everything else stretching across the Eurasian economy. And that's, so that you can kind of see itself mapping itself on, almost like the nervous system to the pre-existing print command economy. And, and that's, that's what it was meant by electronic socialism, was an update of the, the nervous infrastructure, uh, technocratically, of, of the command economy. That technocratic approach was also highly faithful, again, to the larger communist project of moving the socialist experiment one step closer towards promised communism. So Lushkov, while absolutely fascinating on, on many, many levels, is 
also absolutely fascinatingly ideologically faithful in his Marxism. Yeah, I want to actually talk about Glushkov, uh, Viktor Glushkov, who who really pioneered this, uh, the key visionary in, in the development of Ogas, because he's such an interesting figure. He, I mean, the way you describe it in the book, his imagination is so far-seeing. He sees so, f- he, he's imagining things that uh, you point out, we actually are kind of common today, like cloud computing, conceptualization of networks versus, you know, in his relationship to the human body as a metaphor. Is it a brain or is it a nervous system? Uh, who was Glushkov and, and what were his, some of the ideas he came up with? Like one, one of the things you mentioned is that he imagined the elimination of money, for example, in, in terms of keeping with the promise of future communism. What, who was he and what were his contributions and his legacies in, in Russian computers and cybernetics? Glushkov is indeed a fascinating character. So he begins his career as many prominent Soviet scientists do as a, as a mathematician, an algebraist actually, and ends up achieving fame relatively young by solving one of David Hilbert's problems, uh, one of his 20, 20 mathematical problems. And it's in the mid-50s that he kind of achieves this moment uh, of career flexibility, where he's now a young, prominent, internationally recognized mathematician who can do basically go anywhere he wants in the former Soviet Union. And it's interesting then that he chooses to come to Kiev in Ukraine and chooses to take on computers and cybernetics. I have speculations, but I'm not sure why exactly he chose to do so. But I think it's quite interesting, and I'm personally glad that he did, because he goes on to play this role as both a local pragmatist, administrator, builder, practical person around the institution of cybernetics in Kiev, but also as this grand generalist, universalist theorist about what computers and technology might bring about. And and so he's kind of both interesting in practice and in theory. As you already pointed out, uh, the Orgas project was an umbrella for containing many of his sub-projects. And things that we might recognize today, however presentist or you know, anachronistic it is to label them as such, you know, what, what we call cloud computing, and I think a dangerous metaphor today, Glushkov and his team had the courage to call what it was, what it was they were building, a, a real-time surveillance network <laughs> that would span, gather dossiers, tens of thousands of dossiers in, in, in planning, um, in theory, uh, about individuals and organizations. Or, as you pointed out, his early ambitious proposal to bring about a system of what we might think of as online banking today, or in his terms, a fulfillment of Marx's prophecy that the coming of communism would come with the dissolution of hard currency. He thought we could just move towards an electronic, or not just, but we could move towards an electronic system of virtual receipts instead of having hard fiat currency. The paperless office was something that he developed. Natural language programming was something that his teams, and by he, I mean never just he, that's a hagiographic and wrong, but his teams there in Kiev developed natural language programming Ideas about neural processing that are really interesting, instead of like kind of the von Neumann style architecture of, of processing, he, he thought that we might have like the neural soup in our brains, we might have millions of connections connecting to one another simultaneously, and maybe we could build collectivist computers. And, you know, the most ambitious is this idea of mind uploading, of course, without Asimov or Clark, you know, he's talking about taking human memories and uploading them onto dynamic computer storage memory networks so that individuals and collectives alike might achieve what he calls information immortality, a way of outlasting your, your own material uh, mortality. And it, this is, you know, of course, in that light, like who's going to possibly believe that any of that would come about? But the point is not that it's practical. The point is that this 
fell within the larger grandiose project of what a network could do. And that just sheer imaginary ambition, uh, imaginative ambition is, I think, indicative and telling for how we might go about expanding our own memory, uh, sense of what networks do today. He's an interesting person in practically too, because he, so while those are the sort of theoretical ambitions in practice, he was very hardworking, very dedicated at one point. In fact, it's about 1962. He's just become the director of the new Institute of Cybernetics in Kiev. And he's working like 20 hour days to get everything done. And, and he actually collapses and has to be taken to the hospital. And it's there in the hospital, still strapped to the bed that he goes about and finishes what becomes a prize-winning book about computer science uh, while strapped to the bed, you know, after having just overworked himself. So there's there's a sense of that the architect of the Soviet planned economy nervous system would also have this rigor is is maybe not surprising. It's also a fitting reminder, I think, for the rest of us who are thinking about what's the next technology change, that astonishing genius and imaginative foresight and peerless technical wizardry are not enough to change the world. And that that may be one of the signal lessons of Lushkov and his team. Yeah, and I want to talk a bit about his team too, because you also have this very interesting section where in, in 1962, he Glushkov becomes the head of the Institute in Cybernetics, which is station is outside of Kiev, and he collects a number of very young researchers in their mid twenties to to work in this institute. And through their work, they develop an internal culture amongst themselves and even a subculture. And they, de- they begin to imagine an autonomous country called Cybertonia. Talk about this Cybertonia and, and what does it represent in the kind of larger picture of not just Soviet cyberneticists, but perhaps the culture of the time? Exactly. The second point is the key one, is that what was happening in Kiev, while fascinating and unusual for our imagination of computer science, was actually characteristic of a much broader cultural phenomenon. So as as many sort of readers may or may not know, the 60s was a key moment in many parts of the world for connecting kind of counterculture to cyberculture in Fred Turner's phrase, or, you know, this Silicon Valley flower power to consolidating together in the West. So, so too is it the case in Kiev that we can find a playful, merry pranksterist subculture and team, the Institute of Cybernetics, during the day at work, they're hard at work building the Ogas project and its various sub-projects, and I think can rightly be found in the literature as not stoic, but the, the normal history about uh, Soviet scientists as presented in the Russian language doesn't really present flowery pictures of their personalities or characters. And yet in the 60s, I think there was a a moment broader resonance because after work these these same scientists would gather together and created a you could call it as little as a after hours club or as much as an imagined community if not country for trying to declare their aut- autonomy from from Moscow and this this group issued their own constitution sort of jokingly constitution uh, full of puns they passports were you know, instead of getting a ticket to a party, you would get a passport, again, full of mathematical puns. There was newsletters and films and conferences and currency issued on punch cards and uh, like monetary currency and just a sense of playful intellectual independence. They appointed as their mascot and supreme leader a robot playing jazz saxophone, which I think is indicative of sort of Cold War cultural moment. And, and they were also doing so, I, I might note, just a couple blocks away from the brothers 
Strugatsky, who are writing, you know, their, their wonderful science fiction in, at the Institute of, of Physics in, in Kiev. And so there's this kind of imaginative moment where countercultural excitement about new possibilities and technology are aligning. As it happens, Cybertonia is short-lived. It goes from about 1960 to 1968 or 69 when it's pressured out of existence by by the state as there's a consolidation of power and Brezhnev moves into the into Czechoslovakia. There's a pressure to stop having so much fun. Cybertonia disappears. So Ogas doesn't succeed. It's an enormous project. That you, the costs itself are, are out of this world to develop this over a 30-year period. What was its fate? And, and why did Ogas fail? There's many possible responses to that. And we can talk about each of them. But I think the main one I want to focus on is institutional infighting, a kind of a, a bureaucratic incalcitrance. So here's one example. Probably the closest that the Ogas project came to receiving full state funding was on October 1st, 1970, when Glushkov was invited to meet with the Politburo in the, in the Kremlin to review what appeared to be not a slam dunk, but all signatures were in favor of approving the Ogas project at, at this point. So 1970 is one year after the ARPANET, the U.S. ARPANET and the Defense Department goes online, and it seems like the Politburo is interested in Glushkov's project, both as a response to the ARPANET even though it's already been on the books for about eight years, seven years, as well as a way of bringing about economic reform in light of the now problematic Kosygin-Lieberman reforms in 1965. Anyway, so they come together, and here's basically what happens as best as I can reconstruct it. Glushkov, Kosygin, the prime minister, Brezhnev, first secretary, general secretary, of course, are, are supposed to be there. Vasily Garbuzov, the minister of finance, Pyotr Starovsky, the who ran the Central Statistical Administration, all gathered together, as well as other members of the Politburo, to decide the fate of the Olgas. And basically what happens is, for the first while, it looks like everybody's going to be in favor um, of, a, of approving the project when Garbuzov stands up, the Minister of Finance, and says, you know what, I think we're making a mistake here. This is far too complex and overambitious. He's you know, quite clearly justified in that technical uh, pragmatism to say something like this. And he says, instead, why don't we focus on really basic computers? And I just visited a poultry farm in Minsk where I saw computers that turned the lights on and off and music on and off to stimulate egg production. And that let's just do something like that instead. Um, and eventually the committee comes around and agrees with him. He also proposes that there should be a new independent institution that should be in, put in charge of building a, techni a technical network that has none of the economic reform questions involved, just the bare bones of, of, of the networks. And so that's how the decision ends up being made on the books. Although later on, we it turns out that Garbuzov probably had an ulterior motive. And apparently he had a, approached Kasigan beforehand to say that, look, if you approve the Ogas project, it will be controlled by Pyotr Starovsky at the Central Statistical Administration. And he's my, he's my competitor. He's the competitor to my Ministry of Finance. And if this is permitted, I'm going to do my best to submarine, me and my ministry will do my best to submarine the Orgas project internally, which is more or less what had already happened, according to some accounts, to the Kasigan reforms. So Kasigan is trapped, uh, right? Both he and Brezhnev don't actually show up to the meeting that day. And it seems like in a lose-lose situation, it's better just not to be there or something. And in short, it's, it's this story of ministry mutiny that I think is kind of emblematic of the larger institutional resistance 
and, and competition to both control the funding over it as well as to resist the reform implicit in these kinds of technocratic reform projects. And you know, there's other other groups that we could point to as resisting. The Red Army, as I already pointed out, was unlikely to share uh, resources with civilians. Uh, factory managers, when they understood the project, were fearful that uh, the Ogas project might keep them from ac- accessing the informal gray economy and thus making quota. Uh, the economic bureaucrats in particular were worried that the Ogas project would replace them. And so even though they were commanded to support it, and at some moments they still informally resisted it. And, and, and even the uh, liberal economists were fearful that the Orgas project was uh, uh, effectively a conservative technocratic reform, that it would re-entrench power in the hands of the state. Uh, so it, there was broad resistance across a number of relevant stakeholders. And finally, in your introduction, and, and this goes back to our earlier comment about the relationship between, say, political systems and development of cybernetic networks, you state that the first global citizen computer networks developed because, quote, the capitalists behaved like socialists, while the socialists behaved like capitalists. What do you mean by this irony? So this is the uneasy reversal at the at the heart of the book. I mean that the usual Cold War frame about the global history of networks, which, you know, for, for example, is something that like the U.S. ARPANET succeeded thanks to commercial innovation, while the French Minitel network floundered due to state bloat, actually gets the story backwards, at least on face value initially. So I argue that the first global computer networks took shape in the U.S. thanks to collaborative scientists and to state funding, while contemporary attempts in the Soviet Union fell apart due to unregulated competition among bureaucrats, institutions, and other agents. So you have the ARPANET finding its initial footing thanks to cooperative capitalists, as it were, with state funding, while the Ogas project breaks apart against conflicts of self-interest among these you know, competing socialists without the same. And, and I, that's the initial reversal. It's, um, to be totally candid, it's a deconstruction move that I then later on to kind of reconstruct in a new way. And I think it's actually commonplace now among historians of economics to recognize that in the mid-century, at the height of the Cold War, Cold War science and Cold War economics was always practiced by mixed economies. And, you know, that cooperative interagency arrangements and public-private arrangements are actually the default, and, the, and they should be part of our narrative, although I think they far too rarely are. And so both the, the hook, the reversal, as well as the conclusion tries to help us to rethink this Cold War binary and, and, and reverse the socialist-capitalist dichotomy. By proposing that instead of relying on the language, like a liberal economic language, that would oppose private markets to public states, and that, that's kind of fundamental to the Cold War, what instead I want to do is make a 90-degree pivot, both in theor- theory and in, and in my analysis, to show that states and corporations have are kind of, they belong to the same category of of private organizations that want to consolidate power to their own self-interested games in any ways they can, and that the information age and computer networks have actually played, despite our rhetoric otherwise, a surprisingly large role as a facilitator of state and corporate uh, or market power. The, you know, kind of provocative way of saying about this in the present is that the NSA, Google, and other big data brokers aren't just, they're not what comes after the Cold War, so much as they're actually heirs of a much longer Cold War story, where general secretariats, in, in the broadest sense, have been trying to privatize public life with computer networks and with uh, communication systems. Um, in many cases, it's, it's the large and unscrupulous 
organizations that are, that are at the helm of these computer networks anyways. And so perhaps the Soviet internet story then serves as a cautionary tale for us as we think about the politics and the vocabulary that we use to critique network power today. And it, that's the basic move that I, I think I want to make with that capitalist behaving like socialists and socialist behaviors. That was Ben Peters, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Tulsa and author of How Not to Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. If you'd like to submit a question to Ben, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Submit a Question button. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.